Well, good morning again. Would you uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8? I'll read there in a minute. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a Bible under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 8 on a very biblical page number, 777. Easy to remember. We're in the middle of our sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. It's about Jesus, though he's back in heaven at the Father's right hand, working through the Holy Spirit in the lives of, also through the lives of the early church, the Christians in the first century, to accomplish uh, the work that he began to do while he was here on earth. And we said last week that chapter 8 marks a turning point in the story of the early church because the Christians in Jerusalem are suddenly scattered through the onset of persecution. But God uses this for His purposes because we see that, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The gospel is beginning to move beyond the comfortable borders of Jerusalem and its Jewish roots in religion and culture. Last week, we saw that God was at work even among the Samaritans, the despised half-breeds who were the object of intense racial and cultural prejudice. In today's passage, the borders of Christianity get pushed even further out. We pick up in the middle of chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage from Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glimpse of cross-cultural ministry. Thank you for this glimpse of personal evangelism, even of world missions. Show us, Lord, very personally and as a congregation how to take this word and live it out. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. 
Last week, as I mentioned, we saw Philip preaching the gospel in Samaria. And for Samaritans to be offered salvation and to receive it eagerly was an astounding development in salvation history, especially from the, the, the people's perspective, never conceiving that that would be the case. But the Holy Spirit wasn't done showing Philip how far and how wide the kingdom of God needed to extend. And so an angel, verse 26, directs Philip to go south where he runs into a most interesting person, someone who is even more of an outsider than a Samaritan. Three things uh, we'll, uh, we'll use as a, our outline. First, the outsider's outside. Uh, who is he? What is he made of? Uh, where is he from? And then secondly, the outsider's inside, something about the heart and his motivations. And finally, bringing outsiders in. The outsider's outside. Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch, verse 27. Those two words describe several layers of outsiderness. Uh, to take a look at this map, it doesn't give you um, the scale to know where this guy is from, but Ethiopia represented the ancient Nubian kingdom, which would be today's southern Egypt and northern Sudan. It was worlds away. It was the farthest reaches of the known world. And Gaza, mentioned in verse 26, was the last civilization. See where those red lines meet at the bottom left? Uh, that's near Gaza. That's the road. And he's on the way to Gaza, okay, when he runs into this Ethiopian eunuch. Gaza was like the last rest area on 95 for hundreds of miles. You better go because there's not going to be anywhere left. Desert and desert and desert after um, you leave Gaza. And on the way, he meets this guy from the ends of the known world. And by the way, this map shows you uh, in red Philip's travels um, starting in Jerusalem um, in the middle of the green area. He went up to purple, Samaria, and then uh, this angel of the Lord directs him to go south towards the Gaza Road along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He's traveling all over the place. Here's a second layer of outsiderness. Uh, this guy is likely a black man. Um, most likely a, an experience to come uh, uh, across a person of color that was not that ordinary. And uh, thirdly, he's a Gentile. To top it all off, fourthly, he's a eunuch. Now, I'm guessing your knowledge of eunuchology might be a little lacking, so let me fill in some blanks, okay? Um, it was fairly common in the ancient Near East to employ eunuchs as uh, servants in the royal household, and one reason scholars believe is because a eunuch, amongst all the beautiful ladies of the court, uh, including the queen herself, including perhaps the king's concubines and all the princesses, the, the eunuch would not be tempted to uh, do anything disrespectful towards the ladies. Uh, and eunuchs also didn't have many family loyalties. They might have had siblings, they might have had uh, parents still around, but certainly no offspring to worry about, no competing family dynasties, no worry about whether the, the son of the servant might rise up to be the usurper of the throne, no wife and her family and their interests to represent, a very safe household servant to entrust things to. Um, I couldn't help wondering as I was thinking about eunuchs this week during, uh, in, in sermon preparation, you know, what, what kind of job posting does the palace put out? Wanted, household servant who is trustworthy with financial skills, must be male, well, sort of, 
You know, what does that look like? Uh, or, or, or maybe it was more um, along the lines of, um, you know, the head of HR in the palace saying, now, Eugene, this um, coveted position that you now have, well-connected, Queen's right-hand man, uh, there's one thing we need to run by you. For security reasons, the family jewels can't come into the palace. <laughs> you know, no, no, uh, n- none of that old life can come in uh, in this job. And it was a most interesting reality and new identity. The, the sad reality is um, the eunuchs were most often forcibly castrated, sometimes as children, to groom them for this later uh, important job to be the queen or king's right-hand man. And they were taken from the lower classes as servants and given a sense of purpose, a sense of, uh, of uh, identity. He may have had an influential position, but he was still an outsider, even at home. No family, no sense of belonging, no legacy, just his job. And something about the God of Israel attracted him, even from such a great distance. He had a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, or, or perhaps at least just a, a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And that was not a common thing in those days. You couldn't just go to the store and buy a copy of the Bible. Uh, they were rare. The manuscripts had to be handwritten. And not people were educated enough to read, let alone understand what they were reading. This guy took the risk of a long journey, and we wonder if he had the queen's blessing to leave his job as her uh, accountant or bookkeeper um, for weeks at a time. It, it reminds me of um, an account way back in Second Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament where Naaman, who was the commander of the armies of Aram, went to the king of Aram and asked for permission to go to Israel to look for this prophet who he heard could heal his leprosy, and the king of Aram gave him his blessing, and he went, and he found healing. What was this eunuch's motivation for traveling hundreds of miles through desert and danger to go to Israel? If we put some clues together here in Acts chapter 8, we get some perspective on this outsider's inside. This was no diplomatic mission to forge closer ties between Ethiopia and Israel. This was an existential search, uh, a journey that was more along the lines of finding the meaning of life um, at the outsider's inside. This outsider in his homeland and he'll find out, all the more so in Israel, he would have encountered a serious problem when he got to Jerusalem. Because the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 prohibited eunuchs specifically from entering the assembly of the Lord. That was a phrase that described the gathering of God's people in worship and the the height of worship, the center of worship for uh, Israel was at the temple in Jerusalem. All of that travel, maybe fueled by hopes of spiritual discovery, by finding himself, by learning something of the God of Isaiah, if he would reveal himself to him, all for naught. And um, the fact that he was reading the prophet Isaiah, especially chapter 53, gives us a good clue about his hopes and dreams. Because if we turn to Isaiah 53 and then just flipped a couple of pages Beyond it, we would find Isaiah 56, 
in these particular verses I'm about to read. Keep in mind when I read that the word L-O-R-D in all caps in your English Bible is always um, the way to represent the personal name of the God of Israel. In English, we say Yahweh, okay? This foreign eunuch wants to know this particular God with a name who makes these promises. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what Yahweh says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to Yahweh to serve Him, to love the name of Yahweh and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." you were this guy, and you flipped through your scroll, and you came across Isaiah 56, would your eyes not bug out of you? Would you not rub the, you know, the, the cloudiness out of your eyes and wonder, did I just read what I think I just read? Of all people to be singled out in the Scriptures, to be given this, this set of hope-filled promises, this God of Israel named Yahweh is speaking to eunuchs? You wonder if this guy memorized Isaiah 56, hoping beyond hope to meet this God, a God who promises inclusion when he had experienced a life of exclusion. He's in a special category. You know, very few people like him. He doesn't belong. Um, This God promises a memorial, a legacy, specifically a name better than having children, which is something he will never experience as a eunuch. He will not have any descendants. He will not leave a name. And in an ancient culture, that was a huge hit, even to a man's identity. He had something cut off. The scripture talks of not being cut off. Um, what got cut off now forms his identity. The fact that Yahweh is promising not to cut off gives him the hope of a new identity. There's even hope for foreigners in verse 3 and verse 6. Specifically, he has the hope of joyful participation in worship at God's house of prayer. Astonishing scripture to come across if you were a eunuch. That a guy like me, with all of my weirdness and all of my outsiderness, could receive those specific promises from this, I must go find out who he is. I must, queen, please give me permission. I must find out. And perhaps he went with her blessing. Perhaps he snuck out of the the palace with a chariot and a servant. But he goes, and after weeks of grueling and, and maybe dangerous travel through the desert, what does he find at the temple in Jerusalem? He finds the equivalent of the ugliest segregationist signs you could come across in 1960s Alabama. And his equivalent is this, no eunuchs allowed. 
real men only. Eunuchs go home. Hope stashed. He showed up with optimism in spiritual search. He turns around in spiritual despondency. It sounds like such an interesting, particular, distant kind of person, doesn't he? An Ethiopian eunuch in the first century. But I wonder how similar he might be actually to you and to me. Do you know at all, in any way, what it's like to be excluded? Do you know what it's like to be an outsider in any sense of the word? Let me give you a window into how I would share my, a, a glimpse at least of my personal story in understanding what it's like to be an outsider. I grew up um, actually in central Jersey, not in white bread America in, in the middle of the country. Uh, there were ethnic minorities all around, but I grew up in a uh, relatively Americanized Chinese household. My parents spoke um, English, my, mo- my mother with a Jersey accent more than a Chinese accent, with American values uh, for the most part, but there was a part of me that never felt like I quite belonged amongst the majority white um, uh, population in school. And um, when I went away to college, where Jesus tracked me down on the desert road and brought me to faith in himself through the ministry of Campus Crusade, um, I also decided, in addition to Campus Crusade and the friendships I formed there, I also decided to check out the Chinese Christian group out of curiosity. And at the age of 18, 19, I discovered something that surprised me. I didn't fit in there either. I wasn't white enough in my school with mixed faces and mixed colors, and I wasn't Chinese enough to fit in with the Chinese Christian group. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to paint a picture of um, that, that I had an unhappy childhood or I had no friends. I, I, I enjoyed my childhood. I, I had some good friends in adolescence. I had better friends in college. But I think every one of us has at least a, a snapshot of what it means to not belong what it means to feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not quite um, there. I'm not quite in that crowd. There's something distinct. And um, interestingly, in God's uh, economy, I met the one Italian-American girl from Vermont who always dreamed of marrying a Chinese guy uh, as a husband. (laughs) All right, not not exactly, but, you know, the story tells a little bit better that way. what might your version of your story of knowing what it means to be an outsider sound like? For some of you, it is about race, of, of never being like a lot of other people. For others of you, maybe it's that you couldn't um, keep up with the athletic guys. You, were, you could play, but you weren't good enough to be one of them. Or maybe you weren't pretty enough or cool enough, or so you thought, or so one or two people in your life once told you and you believed it, to, to fit in with the in crowd and you're still striving to fit in. You're still um, working and striving and obsessing to look the right way, to impress, to win approval. Some of you look to academic achievement for your identity, for your validation of who you are, your significance, and now academic achievement has become career advancement. And that's your idol. That gives you a sense, yes, I have arrived. 
it, I, I am an insider. I'm at the top, but especially in this post-9-11 world, don't we all know that in the blink of an eye and in the handing of a pink slip, you go from insider to outsider mighty quick. And suddenly you're again on the outside looking in. This Ethiopian eunuch, an outsider if there ever was one, tried to discover a new identity, but he got turned away. And on his way home, he's still searching, reading. Maybe he's wondering, did I miss something? Did I I read this just the wrong way? Is there some key that helps me unlock what I think this says? And out of nowhere, he looks down from his chariot, and there's this Jewish Christian dude running alongside him, offering him spiritual counsel. He didn't even have to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know, the guy was, the guy was there offering assistance because the Holy Spirit had made this divine appointment to prove to this Ethiopian eunuch, Isaiah 56 is still true. My promises have not faded. How, do you, how, how does God bring an outsider in? Lastly, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, did prohibit eunuchs from the assembly of the Lord. But it was not a, you know, a situation where God spoke that through Moses and said, ooh, I didn't mean that. You know, how do I undo that? I'll just, I'll just put in Isaiah 56, you know, some nicer things. Deuteronomy 23 served a purpose, and it was most likely because um, eunuchs were the product in the pagan culture around Israel of self-mutilation as an act of worship. They thought that, you know, it was some way of appeasing the gods. And that association could have no place in the radical holiness of the temple and the worship of Yahweh, God of Israel, because it was associated with pagan worship, okay? But first century, temple in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8, Jesus has already come And he has said the temple no longer has significance. He came to the temple during Passover um, at least once, maybe twice, cleared the money-changing tables in his righteous anger and said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they thought he was crazy. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. What was Jesus saying? I am the new temple. I am the new place where God meets with his people. I am the... Uh, the place or the person through whom you need to come in order to experience pure worship. And when he cleared the money changers' tables, do you know what section of Isaiah he quoted? The eunuch's favorite passage. Isaiah 56, verse 7, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all different kinds of people for all outsiders who don't feel like they belong, for even eunuchs. Because 56, Isaiah is talking about eunuchs. Acts chapter 8 is huge. It's a turning point. It's a hinge. Because the gospel is going out from Jerusalem, leaving its exclusively Jewish roots, now touching on Samaritans, now going even to African eunuch Gentiles. Could we find one particular person that represented outsiderness more than this guy? I don't think so. So Philip climbs into the chariot to lead the Bible study, and the eunuch happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Perhaps one could argue the heart of the Old Testament. 
because the prophet is speaking of the coming Messiah, describing him as a suffering servant, and the eunuch is wondering who this is. And um, verses 32 and 33 in Acts chapter 8, in your text, are quoting Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The, the translation is a little different, okay? Um, so look in your Bibles, um, Acts chapter 8, verse 33. That verse would have been so striking to the eunuch. Perhaps why he was hung up on that verse. Because it says, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. He's thinking, that's me. Humil- humiliation is, is, is the name of my life, is, is the story of my life. Humiliation. I, I'm, I'm humiliated at home because everyone knows how different I am. And I show up in Jerusalem, hoping beyond hope to find this God of Israel. And I'm told to go home. My kind are not allowed here. Humiliation. And then, who can speak of his descendants? The eunuch's thinking, that's me. I'll never have descendants. Uh, This God, speaking through this prophet, he knows something of my unique suffering and um, despondency. And so, verse 35, he asks Philip, and Philip, um, with that very passage of Scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And lo and behold, through faith in this Savior Jesus, the eunuch's identity was transformed from an orphan into a son, from an outsider into a full-fledged member of the very family of God. Could you be more of an insider than one who could legitimately say, I'm a son or daughter of the living God? promised an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This eunuch saw that Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, is the only one who has done for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. The eunuch saw that Jesus was fully and absolutely cut off from fellowship with the Father when he suffered hell on the cross. For what purpose? so that we might not be cut off from the Lord, from Yahweh, but grafted in, connected to Him inseparably. Jesus is the one who gives His people a new name, not through descendants to carry on the family, but by adoption into the very family of God. If you're adopted, you get a new name. You have a new sense of identity. One more time, from a little different angle, I want us to consider together is the eunuch's spiritual profile this time, the outsider's inside, is his spiritual profile all that different from yours? His background included um, some positive things, right? We, we talked about the negative things, how outsider of an outside he was, but some of the good things. He was a powerful man. He had connections. He had status. You know, not anyone rode in a chariot in that day and age. And we get a clue that he probably had support staff, servants working for him as the chief servant. You know, he gave orders, verse 38, to stop the chariot. You know, it takes someone really weird to give orders to himself. You know, self, stop the chariot, you know, bring the horses around. No, he probably had people on the ground, you know, bring this. We got to do something right now because I'm experiencing this spiritual transformation. He was important. He was uh, most likely well-educated, definitely literate. And, and yet when asked by Philip, 
a question, he immediately says, yes, I need help. Please help me. I can't figure this out. Because that inner humility, despite the outer characteristics, the inner humility is necessary in any context, in any person's life, for faith in Jesus Christ. Inner humility is necessary for salvation because pride and self-sufficiency and any variation on I can do it myself um, push God away and hold back any spiritual growth. If that is true of you, then you're too worried too often about what other people think of you. And you're fussing about your image all the time, preening your feathers to make a good impression. But only when you say, I have no idea. I'm at a loss. I'm clueless. I have no idea how to get from here to there to make any progress. I am utterly helpless. Only then can you access Holy Spirit power, which brings about any life change, let alone a miraculous transformation of an outsider to an insider. We said this from week number one of this Acts series, uh, a quote of an author, you cannot be full of the Holy Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. Humility, inner humility, so required. And despite this man's station, despite the temptation, we would think, to make himself more important than he really is, to make up for all those insecurities, he immediately says, I, I need help. I'm desperate. You know, that kind of humility also means that you need other people. You can't live the Christian life. You can't grow spiritually, personally, emotionally all by yourself. You don't have what it takes, nor do I. We need one another. We, we need to open ourselves fully and honestly to other people so that God can use them to speak truth into our lives, to support us, to encourage and challenge and hold accountable in rich spiritual community. And, and can I can I use that as um, a reason for a quick commercial? Growth groups are a great place to start being known by other people. I hope you hear us regularly talk about needing to be in a growth group, trying out growth groups. And, and, and maybe some of you, you know, that's just noise, and it just goes right over you, and it's, it's, it's what you expect to hear at church. Maybe others of you, though, find that idea of joining a growth group very threatening, because as an outsider, you wonder, am I going to be welcomed in? Am I going to be included? Am I going to be liked? And if that sub-theme carries uh, on from childhood, from that snapshot of an experience of what it means to be an outsider, perhaps those fears prevent you from ever picking up the phone or sending an email to the growth group leader saying, hey, can I join you this coming Thursday? It's worth the risk because you cannot grow. You cannot experience any spiritual transformation all by yourself. You need to be known by others and yield yourself in that inner humility so that you can receive truth um, for maturity. Do you know what it's like to be an outsider? Do you have a sense of what it means to be excluded? On the outside looking in, marginalized, left out, forgotten, rejected. I think that common experience explains why the editors of TV Guide voted the Cheers television show theme to be the greatest TV theme of all time. And I don't think it's because of the catchy jingle that many of us can just draw on. You know, sometimes you want to go 
where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. I don't think it was the jingle. I think it was the words that grabbed hold of Americans' hearts and minds, subconsciously perhaps, universally. Yeah. Sometimes, no, all the time, I want to go where people know my name. I want to, I, I want to have people glad that I came. Why? Because that means I'm an insider. That means I belong. That means I, I have community. I have mutual affection. I love and I am loved. You, you know what I find interesting? I uh, found interesting as I was reading. At the beginning of chapter 8, we'll close with this. At the end of the account of Stephen as the, one of the first deacons being martyred for his faith, we hear of this man named Saul, not yet converted. Come back next Sunday. Um, he began to destroy the church, verse 3. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Why, why do you have to say dragged off men and women? You know, um, perhaps it's because in the history of warfare, at least until the late 20th century, where some of these you know, crazy things um, began to be more um, commonplace, who typically got imprisoned and executed or, or merely carted off by the enemies? It, it was the dangerous ones, the men who could rise up in armed rebellion, right? The women and ch- if you take care of the men, now, now there's nobody to fight, and the women and children will... Well, complain. No, Saul, the text explicitly tells us, was going from house to house, dragging off men and women. Why? Because in the kingdom of Christ, women are just as dangerous as the men. Can I get a Mother's Day amen? <laughs> we mean dangerous in the best of ways, ladies, right? Dangerous to the enemies of Christ. And in the kingdom of Christ, it goes far beyond gender. In the kingdom of Christ, those who are weak are actually more effective than those who are strong, because human strength is no strength at all compared to God. And in the kingdom of Christ, those who are foolish are more effective than the wise, because we are not wise at all in our sin. And in the kingdom of Christ, outsiders can belong, can become full members of the family, can rest secure in a love that will not be shaken all made possible because Jesus willingly endured the exclusion of the Father and suffering hell on the cross. He became an outsider, leaving the ultimate insider position of beloved Son so that all of us who trust in Him, in His substitute death on the cross, might belong, might be included, might taste forever what it means to be intimately in the family of God. The gospel is the ultimate equalizer. Some of us may come in here thinking we have what it takes. I'm a good person. I got, I got a lot to offer God. The gospel is the ultimate equalizer. No, you don't. However you think you're rich, however you think your arms are full of goodness to offer God as a sacrifice, there are five dumpsters outside in the parking lot. You can put it right in there. And if you think on the other uh, end of the spectrum, you know, you, you, you're hiding your face. You can't even look people in the eye because you have messed up in life. You, you, you're one of those outsiders in, in terms of spiritual living. You've made big mistakes. The gospel is the ultimate equalizer. Lift up your head. 
look to Christ. There is no shame because if you place your faith in Him, your shame and the guilt of every one of your ugly sins has been nailed to the cross. And the gospel alone gives you power as an outsider to come in as the ultimate, intimate family member of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that your spirit would not leave us alone, that you would prompt us to think about how we have tasted what it's like to be an outsider, perhaps not as much as an African Gentile eunuch in that culture, but in certainly smaller ways and perhaps just as significant, painful, destructive ways. Show us, Lord, how that label applies to us, and then show us Jesus. Show us how the Son became an outsider that we might come in. We pray in His precious name, Jesus Himself. Amen.